This is an ABC podcast. I remember he was um, really sick with the flu and he was saying, I'm letting my friends down. He said, I'm meant to be going to Ireland and I'm letting them down. And I said, Dad, you can go at another time. And he said, no, 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 you don't understand, Bob. They're needing me now. I've promised the statues and they're ready to be picked up. And that's when he told me that he had ordered statues to be handcrafted by the monks in Portugal and that his intention was to go and pick up those statues and take one to Walsingham in England and one to Ireland to bring peace. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. Barb grew up as the sixth of 11 kids in an Irish Catholic family, headed by her father Dave, an eccentric and devout man. As an adult, years after Barb had walked away from the church, she's called to help her father with an elaborate plan to bring peace to Northern Ireland through prayer. And even she'll be surprised by the depth of Dave's faith and the power it holds, even for non-believers. From his earliest childhood, David had always been one for Catholic ritual and mythology. The smell of burning incense, the power of saintly examples that had come before. Even into his middle age, as a suburban news agent, he was drawn to some of the more fantastical elements of the faith. I think he was a fervent Catholic, but... Mary, the mother of God, the significance of the messages that had come through apparitions, was a guiding light for him, more than the Bible was. In particular, Dave was inspired by a series of apparitions that had happened in 1917 in a small Portuguese town called Fatima. Our Lady appeared to three children in Portugal and... She said to them, if you pray the rosary every day, you will bring peace to the world um, and the end of war. And then the sun spun in the sky, uh, so she sent a sign so that people would believe in her. In response to the apparitions, an international group forms to take on this mission of peace through prayer. They call themselves the Blue Army. Blue is the colour most associated with Mary, the colour of transcendence, mystery, of the divine. And Blue Army members like Dave, they recite the rosary every day in an effort to bring peace to the world, and they hold public vigils to promote Mary's message. So while her mum Pat is at home with the younger kids, from the age of five, Barb and her older siblings are taken out by Dave to pray in public. And they spend the first Saturday of each month winding their way through Sydney's streets. They had a statue of Mary and we would walk through Surrey Hills around the edges of King's Cross and we would be praying out loud the rosary. People would be sitting there with their beers and, you know, the kids would be playing on the street and we would look at them as if they were the sinners. It was cult-like. The Statue of Mary stands on a weighted base with four poles jutting out. A quartet of men hoist her up onto their shoulders and passing pubs and brothels and corner stores, they hold her aloft and spread the good word. And as they walk along, they stop in at every Catholic chapel 
reciting certain prayers. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. In one of them, you had to put your hands outstretched as if, you know, it was a crucifixion pose, and you'd be sitting or kneeling, rather, with your arms outstretched for such a long time. And you could just feel the, the pain in your arms and wanting to put them down. So Dad would speak very slowly and deliberately, and he'd go, Our oh, Father, who art in heaven. And we'd be going, Give us this Dad deliberately, as fast as we could. And when we were little, we didn't know the words that we were saying. We were mimicking, like a lyrebird, I suppose, the sounds around us. Over the years, Dave's belief only gets more intense. Like a few years later, when Barb's older sister, who's now an adult, tells Dave that she won't be making it to an Easter service. He goes into mourning. And Barb's mum, Pat, is forced to watch on as he dyes all of his clothes black and singes his hair off in repentance for his daughter's actions. I think he used something um, like an accelerant. Then he put a match next to it and then he patted it down with his hand. So he'd do it in small patches. So, you know, it looked like those pictures you see of koalas who've had their little coats singed. With displays like this, it takes years for Barb to work up the courage to leave the faith. But eventually, as her siblings do one by one, Barb pulls away too and leaves her job as a Catholic school teacher to enrol in drama school. Probably in my early 20s was when I rejected the faith and felt angry about how much control this had had over our existence and the need to silence the voices and to find my own was profound. I enjoy the freedom and I met Mark. Mark was so free-spirited. His background was so different. He's not a Catholic. Um, And so that was quite liberating. My father was a lapsed Catholic, so we were brought up as complete um, heathen urchin agnostics. Mark as a writer comes from a small family, and soon enough he's thrown into the noise and chaos of their crowded family dinners. He knows that he's been fully inducted into the family, the night that he can recite by heart the birth order of all 11 siblings. But then, not long after he and Barb get together, Barb's mum Pat becomes ill, and they lose her to cancer. They all mourn this great loss, and in his grief, Dave's already devout faith deepens further. His wife was probably uh, a hand of reason on him, stopping him from really going overboard with it. So once she had passed away, there was no one to contain him. So his behaviour started to become slightly more exaggerated, more eccentric. It's not long after this that they hear one of these new eccentricities is a pen-pal relationship that Davis struck up with some other members of the Blue Army, including a group in Northern Ireland. What starts as a correspondence based on prayer groups soon develops further. They share common beliefs and they share a common desire for prayer to transform the world. And he becomes like a confessor to them. And it's my understanding that um, most of the men are members of the IRA and that 
They have been involved in some of the operations. There are bombings and there are, you know, executions and by dad listening to them and being that mediator, uh, a number of them came back to Catholicism. Almost by definition, Belfast now is explosive and unpredictable. It's 1989. The Troubles have been raging for more than 20 years by now. The Protestant-led government in Northern Ireland is locked in a conflict with Catholic nationalists who want to leave the UK and become part of an Irish Republic. There's daily violence and unrest in the streets of Belfast. Just about everybody knows or is related to someone who has been murdered by one or other of the rival gangs. At times, the centre of Belfast has been brought to a halt by traffic jams caused by all the funeral processions. So living within his own grief and bolstered by these new friendships, Dave cooks up a plan from Sydney to bring peace. Faith is not the problem, he thinks, but the solution. And his method? Devotional statues of Mary, Our Lady. They would be the key. But Barb only learns of his plan when she's called to his bedside one afternoon. I don't know how he came up with the plan, but I think he did himself go, this is what I can do. If I can have a statue of Our Lady handcrafted by the monks in Fatima for Walsingham in England and another one that goes to Northern Ireland and people pray in those areas, we can bring back uh, peace in Northern Ireland. David booked a travel to Portugal to collect the statues. He would personally deliver one to Ireland and have the other shipped to Walsingham in England, a Catholic stronghold there. The statues would then move, parish to parish, house to house, inspiring vigils and prayer circles, and eventually bringing peace where sectarian violence had raged for so long. But Dave has now been struck down with the flu, and due to fly out in 10 days, he tells her with great sorrow that he's too sick to go. I said, could someone else do it for you? And he said, oh, who? Who could go and do that? And I said, look, maybe I could. Maybe I could do that for you. And I sort of wasn't expecting him to say yes. And he just, he just sat up and went, could you do that? And that was like, oh, why have I said this? God damn, what would I do? You know, like, I don't know if I can do this. And I, I remember sort of backtracking and thinking, I couldn't do it by myself. Like, if we're supposed to be carrying these things. And I said, look, Mark would have to come with me. Neither of us said, you're not married, but both of us, I know, had that flash at that time. Because travelling together, unmarried, on a mission of this nature, it would come with invisible strings attached for Barb. No shared beds in places of religious significance, upholding Dave's values while on the other side of the world, Barb would have to practise Dave's faith by proxy. And all this passes between them as Barb sits on his bedside. And I said... If Mark and I travelled together, Dad, I would never compromise you. And he said, that would be wonderful and you do need to travel with Mark. Barb takes the idea to Mark. They'll follow Dave's itinerary, complete his mission. And in the process, as two young, underemployed artists, they'll get to travel overseas for the first time, free of charge. You know, Mark found the whole thing quite funny and bemusing. And both of us, I I just remember it was like, oh, my God, seriously, like, we could do this? 
Um, we had no money. And I went, Mike, we could travel overseas and we could do this. So they agree. And it's all systems go. They start applying for passports, organising logistics. And as they go to transfer Dave's flights into tickets for the two of them, they notice something strange on one leg of the journey. From Fatima to go back to England, he had, he had return tickets for Della Maria Fatima and he to be travelling together. Barb knew immediately who it was. Uh, I didn't. I, I, <laughs> what are you thinking? Oh, I'm thinking he's got a, a Portuguese friend that he's going to, lady friend he's going to bring home. So Mark's going, who is Della Maria Fatima? And I was laughing, saying, Mark, that's Della, you know, Our Lady Maria of Fatima. It's Our Lady of Fatima. It's Della Maria Fatima. What he'd done was he'd bought a ticket for the statue. Uh, I, I gather that... He couldn't bring himself to submit Mary to the indignity of being chucked in the luggage hold with all the suitcases. And the fact that he'd been able to buy a ticket and they'd accepted that it was called Della Maria Fatima with no no evidence of anyone, of any human being travelling with him. My image is, imagine the, um, you know, sitting on an aeroplane with a statue between you, buckled in, um, getting a cup of tea and rocking back and forth in the... The airline seat. (laughs) Ten days later, Mark and Barb land in Fatima, Portugal, to collect the statues. The first few days, there's the discomfort of culture shock, getting their bearings. Barb's a celiac and struggles to find anything wheat-free that she can eat. The place is home to the apparitions of Mary that had inspired the Blue Army. But the town itself isn't much more than a drab collection of 1970s buildings, plus a huge basilica. The concourse that leads up to its front door stretches the length of an airport runway. And walking past, they notice that on hands and knees, padded with leather patches, pilgrims crawl their way up to the entrance on all fours, offering up their endurance and pain as an act of suffering for the greater good. Mark and Barb head on to the enclosed monastery, where David commissioned the two Mary statues on special order. So it's, you know, knock on the door and the slide goes across and they let us into the parlour. They're shown in by a pair of Irish nuns, cheery and pink-cheeked, who, for reasons that go unexplained, live here in central Portugal. And so they said, we'll bring them out. They've got very beautiful faces. So every statue looks different. Um, and they said, you know, to be sure, you'd want them to have a very beautiful face, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know? These kind of Portuguese gardeners, burly labourers, lugged out the statue. As they open the crate that she's been stored in, they take a look at the first of the Marys, standing in a white tunic dress with gold filigree details, hooded and serene. Barb had been familiar with these statues since her childhood. Her dad would have them imported into Australia in crates packed with straw, arriving by the dozen like bottles of wine, each about a foot tall. Even Mark had become familiar with them by now. But these two statues are different. My first thought was, it's as big as my mum. It was huge. (laughs) (laughs) What are we talking? Oh, you know, five foot three or something like that. Like a human lady-sized. Yeah, yeah. 50 kilos, I'm not sure but they hadn't realised that what we were going to try and do was carry the statue. 
The nuns look on in mild surprise as Mark explains the plan to carry them from Portugal to Ireland and England, keeping them close the whole time. And they shake their heads as he attempts a practice run, stuffing all five foot three of one of these solid wood statues into a large bag. I could uh, barely lift it. Between the two of us, if we had one handle each, we could lift it and you know, swing it awkwardly between us. The little nun said, Oh, to be sure, you'd never be able to carry that. It's way too heavy. Just post it. I certainly felt absolved. I was kind of slapped my hands together and thought, great, let's go have a holiday. And I'm going, we can't post it. We've come all this way. Like, ah, uh, ah, uh, uh. And I felt so much guilt. Travelled all this way, spending Dad's money, having a great holiday, and not even to meet the commitment that I had made to him to personally deliver the statue. Barb felt a little bit as though she was not doing it properly. She had to kind of suffer for it in order to um, do right by her father's wishes. But I didn't have Dad there to go, is that okay, Dad? You know? <laughs> it, was, it was hard. But I also thought, can't you see that it's, it's just a belief system that shouldn't rule your life? So I was hoping that she would see the sense of what the nuns were saying and just accept it, which eventually she did. So it's decided. The delightful Irish nuns living in Portugal will take care of the postage. Mark and Barb will meet each of them once they arrive, one in England and one in Ireland, to see them off to their new homes. But beyond the practicalities, the encounter at the monastery reveals to them both just how differently they'd each conceived of the mission. But also the differences of faith, of family, of history that they'd each grown up in. Mark is respectful, funny, irreverent, all the things that had drawn Barb to him in the first place. But he's not a believer. And Barb, though she's keen to know herself away from church and family, is still figuring out a childhood that had been steeped in the Blue Army and her father's extreme take on the faith. These were differences that they'd managed to weather day to day, but here they tug harder at each of them, nagging and insistent. There's a huge tension for me. Um, So I'm with Mark, who's interested and intrigued, but doesn't understand the resonance of all the experiences that I'm having. And when you come here and you see all these people who believe this, have I thrown away something? I was really confronted by the differences between Mark and I. Oh, well, I suppose it was a... Not so much a crisis of faith, a crisis of doubt. So she was questioning the validity of of the way she lived her life. I was aware that I would be going on a journey where I was needing to take my father with me to feel like I was honouring him and I would never cause him shame. But I did feel like I was on a pilgrimage. But for now, with the Marys about to be packed up and shipped out, they have no choice but to press on with the mission. So Barb places a call to the Bishop of Walsingham in England. And as she dials, she wonders what kind of enthusiastic response she's about to receive. Will the Bishop be overwhelmed? Maybe even overawed by the gift of this handcrafted statue and all that it symbolises. 
And I said, look, my father would love to gift a statue and he wants me to ask you if you will accept. Um, and he said, oh, look, we've got cupboards full of, you know, statues. And he said, thanks, but no thanks. And I, like, I was, my jaw, so it wasn't just that we didn't carry the statues, it was that this one has now been rejected as well. I said, I have to call Dad. And he was devastated. He was silent and then he was, oh, this was his dream, you know, to bring the two countries together and to create peace. And I was the person who was announcing that this had been rejected. And finally he said, oh, look, just post it home. A flurry of international phone calls follow and the Irish nuns in Portugal reroute one of the Marys to Dave in New South Wales. The other continues its way to Ireland as planned, and its destination there will be a place called Mount Mallory. Dave had chosen it because just a few years before, in 1985, some local Irish kids had claimed to have witnessed apparitions of Mary at a grotto just outside town. Mark and Barb hitchhike their way up from Dublin, to find the very small town that's home to a sizeable Cistercian monastery. Inside live a closed order of self-sufficient monks. Jean Kelly and Fred Astaire had visited over the years, seeking refuge and retreat. While Mark and Barb had enjoyed a few weeks travelling around Europe away from the mission, the statue of Mary had arrived at a local home, and she'd already started making the rounds in town, moving from house to house. It's quickly clear to both of them that in Mount Mallory, the divine and the pedestrian exist side by side without the slightest whiff of contradiction. It's perfectly normal to hold a prayer circle in your living room around a life-size statue of Mary. And the kids who'd witnessed the apparitions a few years before are now young adults. And a few times, Mark and Barb see them driving around town on their way to the shops. But as far as accommodation goes, David directed them to the monastery's gatehouse, where his friends, an elderly couple named Michael and Betty, welcomed them to stay for the night. We were in another decade, was what I felt, or another century even. Like the smells, the smell of um, meat broiling, the smell of potatoes cooking, really old, warm smells. And the accents were so thick it was impossible to understand them, but eventually we were able to communicate. There was no modern gadgetry anywhere. And it's 1989, I'm guessing Betty and Michael didn't have a TV. No, oh, they did have a TV. (laughs) They had a TV and they were watching a country practice. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, it's like, at this time, we'll sit down and we'll watch it. That's what we're going to do, you know. But the plan for both of them to stay the night soon hits a little snag. Once they realised that Barb and I weren't married, they said, oh, well, I wasn't allowed to sleep under their roof. So I had to go and sleep in the monastery with all the monks. So after dinner and reciting the rosary and an episode of a country practice, Mark prepares for the walk up to the monastery. Barb sees him out, and standing in the dim light on the gatehouse doorstep, she tells him that the doubt she's been carrying since they left Sydney might have grown too big to ignore. She said, I don't know if we can, you know, if these questions can allow us to be together and maybe this is the wrong thing for me. Whether, you know, she was on on the verge of uh, going back to the church of her father or or not. So questions which I attributed to be some sort of religious crisis. 
you know, coming from childhood shelter, growing up, doing all the right things and then going, nah, now I've found a sense of who I am in the world. And then to have both worlds meet and have to be making very quick decisions and confronting, you know, my past, my present and my future was uh, intense. A bit of bad news, really, for me. I was angry, and um, but without any way to resolve it or, or deal with it. I had to walk up the hill in, in the darkness, uh, almost fell in the grave in the monk's graveyard, knock on the door and wait for, you know, footsteps to come and the door creak open and, you know, can I please have a bed for the night? Mark spends a strange and restless night in a tiny room, not much bigger than a cell. The cold stone walls, making it impossible to find warmth. The next morning, in return for his stay, Mark assists the monks with some chores. And Barb makes time to see Father Athanasius, a healing priest in the order that David recommended she meet. The very first thing he said to me, like he shook hands and then he said, do you know if you said grace before meals, you wouldn't have food allergies? And I just went, well, I actually burst into tears. (laughs) How do you know I have food allergies? He said, that doesn't matter. Why don't you come back to the faith, your father's religion? You know, it's that simple. He was really quite um, confronting, almost aggressive, like really forthright. Are you here by yourself or you're here with somebody? And I said, I'm here with Mark. He's downstairs. Um, And he said, go and get him. Anyway, he came up and he walked into the room and no sooner was he in the room than what looked like was going to be a handshake turned into a headlock. And he just went, so... Why don't you come back to your, your faith? And Mark went, I don't have a faith. And he said, yes, your, your grandmother's faith. And she was Irish and she was Catholic. And um, he said, oh, no, I'm not, I don't believe in any of that. I can see Mark's face and I can see Father Adonatius and they're both facing me, but Mark's in a headlock. It was really strange. Is there any truth to any of this? How does he know some of this stuff? How did you know that? Just come back to the faith. Before they leave, they make a trip down to the grotto on the edge of town, where a few local kids say they'd seen the apparitions a couple of years before, in 1985. And this is only 1989, so this is very fresh. This is very current. And part of me goes... Ha, ah, did Dad know this? Like, has he set me on this challenge? Is this why I'm here? Is he hoping that Mark and I will be converted? Uh, so there's, yeah, a lot of stuff happening. It's green and quiet in the grotto. There's a stream running through, a few church pews. And standing a couple of metres above it all, a statue of Mary, Our Lady. Barb pulls her camera out. Again, she was trying to make the experiences real for her father as possible, so she was taking lots of photos. As she focuses the lens, Barb's thinking about Father Athanasius and his demand that she come back to the faith, the faith of her father. Just come back to the faith. It's that simple. Why don't you just come back? As she snaps away, the answer she'd given Father Athanasius comes back to her and her resolve hardens. 
I can't do that. That was the first time I actually just stated. I just said, I can't. Barb has made her decision. And now she needs the Mary statue in front of her to stay in line. And while I'm taking photos of the statue, I'm saying, just don't show yourself to me. I don't want to know if you really do exist. I'm just taking photos to take home to Dad. I'm here with Mark. This is the trajectory I see for our lives together. So don't tell me if I'm wrong. So I'm going, am I wrong? And then I go, don't tell me if I'm wrong. Just don't show me. Like, if you're going to appear to me, can you not, please, Mary, in this grotto at this moment, if you're going to show yourself, just don't. What were you afraid of capturing, do you think? Oh, well, if what I saw was um, an apparition of Our Lady, then that would mean that I, my whole belief system would have to change and that I would be a freak. I'd be one of those people that people go, she's just freaky. I don't know how it happened, but when we got back, the only roll of film that was missing was the roll of film from the grotto. Not there. And we got everything developed and I'm going, where's the roll? Where's all the ones from Mallory? And there were none. And that sort of spooked me. That's that part of me that goes, oh, that's just interesting. And I don't need to know any more than that, but that's just interesting. Shortly after they arrive back in Sydney, Mark and Barb are married. And a few years later, Dave travels back to Northern Ireland. He's going to be part of one of the first peace marches there, walking the streets of Belfast up to the cathedral. And Dad was um, on the march with them, carrying the statue with other bearers, carrying the statue that we had sent, walking and saying the rosary and they're singing and it's a very joyous occasion for them all. But not long after the peace march, Dave gets sick again and he's hospitalised in Belfast. His kids, back in Sydney, are worried. But his fellow Blue Army members rally around him. They kept vigil. They prayed by his bedside 24 hours a day. He'd found his clan again, and it wasn't us. We were his family. They reflected back all the values and beliefs that he held that we had all now moved away from. He was home. He was where he needed to be. So maybe he lingered for 10 days. And then he passed away. And not long after that, there was peace in Ireland. Barb and Mark have now been married for more than 30 years. One of the Marys continues to make her way around Ireland to this day, and the other, after arriving in Australia, was sent to a parish on the New South Wales north coast. If you think you might have seen her, please get in touch. We'd love to hear how she's doing. Thanks for listening to Days Like These. We'd love to hear about the biggest day in your life, so please send through details to us. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at Elizabeth Coolass, or you can send an email 
We are Days Like These at abc.net.au. Make sure to follow Days Like These on the ABC Listen app or your favourite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. And we'd also love it if you could leave us a rating or a review. We love to hear what you think and it helps new people find the show. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. I reported today's episode and it was made on the lands of the Wiradjuri, Woiwurrung and Gadigal peoples. Sound design by me and MRS Cronin. The supervising producer was Andrew Davies. Our producer is Tamar Cranswick and our script editor is Sophie Townsend. Our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Tom Wright. And our theme song is Yeah Nah by The Gooch Palms, courtesy of Rackbag Records and BMG. See you next time. Next time on Days Like These, a childhood dream of soccer glory comes true not once, not twice, but three times. I still think that he, he is probably the best player that I've ever seen live. And I have seen Pele play out. I saw Maradona, but for me, best still is the best player that I've seen live. You know, he had this aura about him, and uh, it was just amazing how he kept sort of coming back in, into my life. That's coming up next week on Days Like These. Hi, I'm Andy Matthews. And I'm Alistair Trombley-Birchall. And we're here to remind you that the pop test, that comedy science quiz show from Radio National, is back. Each week we pick a science topic and ask comedians and scientists important questions like... Why might you stir your tea at 28,000 RPM? Where on earth does time travel the slowest? And what's so suspicious about being left-handed? With guests Sean McAuliffe, Claire Hooper, Cal Wilson, Dr Alan Duffy and Sammy Shah... The Pop Test. Hear it now on the ABC Listen app or almost anywhere you get your podcasts. Podcasts.